So Declan. Hey everybody. Oh. Oh yeah. yeah, I'm I'm doing the cold open this time, buddy. Fine. All right. Well, I got a joke for fine. you. Shoot. Why did Hitler get hit by a baseball? I don't know. Why did Hitler get hit? Because by a he baseball? did not see it coming. Oh fuck. <laughs> no, no, no. You know what? You know what? Okay. I thought you said, okay, I've got this great joke for the for the cold open. Like I was gonna tell a joke about you said, oh, I got this great Nazi joke for the cold <laughs> open. Like I was expecting something new. I was expecting new territory because I had a, I was gonna think of a joke about how Max Mosley, direct rel- the son of Oswald Mosley, just recently died, and how I was gonna Rest make some Nazi piss. joke. And I, I said no. I said no. I said, no, you know what? I'll let you take the cold open on this one. I'll let you prove some, some, I'll let you prove some, uh, a, a comedic frontier, mm. if you will. I'll let you prove new grounds. Right. But no, you just bust out. Oh I like God. how Declan just like I'm so fucking mad right now. I'm not now. the funny one. I'm just like that's, integrated. That's like it wasn't even a point. That's not my intention. That's not no, my intention. No, but it's true. No, it's true. You're the funny one and I'm the guy who does the research. I mean, fair <laughs> enough. You know what? That's it's it's an arrangement that's worked for over a year, isn't it? That's crazy. I mean, I think we didn't give enough uh, fanfare for our anniversary episode. We'll do something for the less said about our early episodes, the better. Like I think the first ten are easily skipped. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like part one of JoJo. You just don't really have to watch or slash listen. Um. But anyways, uh, we have a pretty jam-packed episode for you guys this mm-hmm. week. Um, so, oh, and the Nazi thing is actually relevant. I didn't just say that. Yeah, so... But the, we'll get uh, to that. I mean, we can kind of kick off with... Because uh, this is an episode where we're talking a lot about the far right. And so, um, I think it was fairly good timing that, uh, as I said you know, at the top of the show... Former director of Formula One, I forget his actual job title, but um, he, Max Mosley, recently died. Um, he was ousted from his position after, and I'm not joking here, a Nazi sex scandal. And of course, it's um, important to remember that this guy is the son of uh, Sir Oswald Mosley, who was basically the founder of fascism in Britain. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you guys, here, well, I'll have put, you guys will have heard the, we live in a period speech by now. We live in a but, period um, in which racing No, they just heard it, don't popular. say it. They, they, they just heard it. <laughs> no, they did not. No, they heard Bashar. No, I'll, we'll, I'll edit it in, don't All worry. Right. Anyway, Max, so yeah, back to Max Mosley. Um, you know, he did a lot for the sport, but I'm not I'm not about to, to get on my microphone, my soapbox here, and, and say, yeah, he was a great guy. Um, he, he did amazing things for the sport. He, he did things money. no one else could. I mean, he, yeah, he had money, and he had, uh, you lots know, of connections. connections. And As apparently, um, the guy that sort of, you could almost call it the F1 Teams Union, like almost like the NHLPA. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's, was called, uh, I want to say FOM. Um, Bernie Ecclestone, who it sort of manages the TV rights and everything, but he was asked for comment because Max Mosley was sort of the sporting director. Like, he ran all the rules, and then Bernie was in charge of the money. Um, and Bernie Ecclestone was asked for comment about Max Mosley's sex scandal at the time when it happened. 
and there was a huge thing of like a long list of allegations of what had gone on and bernie all he had to say was i'm impressed that he lasted six hours except he's very south british and so i'm sure malcolm you can do the accent no i couldn't no i could butcher it i couldn't do it on command that's for certain like if i was in the middle of a bit i'm sure i could pull it out i'm not doing south english on a on a whim uh, um so let's uh let's, but anyway let's yeah. hop into what we've got rest in piss max mosley um yeah rest probably one of the funniest ways to get fired from your job yeah true enough um so what do we but have i today? think we've got we're, we're, the story we're of gonna talk about some dictators mm-hmm. that did a little trolling yeah you know as one does it's called they did a little trolling. Mm. before this starts i think we should clarify uh Bashar al-Assad and Alexander Lukashenko are bad people. They're oppressive. Okay, all dictators are bad. But, uh, and and in no way what we talk about today should be taken as a defense of their rules. Uh, or reign, rather. Their, their hold of power, right? But, uh, you know, we're just going to convert to a liberal podcast for a, for a minute for an episode. Talk about the lesser of two yeah, evils. Yeah, we're going to... We're... <laughs> to to sum up what Malcolm's trying to get across here, this is uh, the screed that every, like, leftist does in their political science class before they talk about any topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um... um but yeah, but like, anyway. we're, we're talking about politics here, right? And obviously, some people are bad, some people are worse. Right, and ob- that doesn't apply to like two conservatives like Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It doesn't apply to two liberals like Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But uh, it it definitely applies to personalist dictators versus far right ideologues. Ideologues, right? What is the face you just made? You look very surprised at something. Don't worry about it. Okay. Anyways, so um, we're gonna talk about opposition figures to these leaders who are very bad. But again, that don't take that as a, a defense of, of al-Assad and Lukashenko. And even if we say something like, yeah, it's really good that Bashar al-Assad won the Syrian civil war against the U.S.-funded rebels, again, that doesn't mean that ideally, in an ideal world, Bashar al-Assad would be president of Syria, right? No. Right. Okay. Even though his even though his, his walk-on theme music fucking Even rocks, though it's the best. Like, heard. Bashar al-Assad's theme music is, is yeah. by far the best in the world. I'm just picturing Except like, for a, YMCA like a WWE, WWE uh, <laughs> style tournament where yeah every every like head of state has to like just go toe to toe in like a cage match. What does Justin have? Like I'm, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking like a tag team with uh, who would who would McCall. Justin make no, a good tag Emmanuel team McCall. with? It's easy. It would be like the Voros. I don't twins. know. It would Maybe... be like the Voros twins, except they're annoying. And speak French to each other and uh, wrestle, but what what would Justin? I mean, maybe maybe okay, maybe technically not a head of state, but I think it would be very funny if he did a tag team with Raúl Castro. Well, I mean, well, technically, uh, it would be yeah, exactly. But yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. So then, so then you get, and then you get the queen against. the Queen and then Bojo against oh my Justin. God. Well, and okay, Raul. but the thing is, is that that would be such a boring match because, like, Justin Trudeau and Raul Castro are like strength people, and the Queen and Boris Johnson are both like endurance. I think people. the Queen would fight dirty. Yeah, and the Queen. I think the Queen. Well, she'd would fight rip the dirty. shit out of him with her handbag. But like, they're both yeah. endurance people. They're people who don't die. 
right? And so it would just be kind of like a boring match. It would just be them, like, Justin and Raul Castro wailing on the Queen and Bojo and nothing happening. Anyways, this is really off topic. So we're going to talk about some news um, from this week. Uh, This week, the date of recording is the 26th of May, 2021. So... First of all, um, yeah, we've gotten our dictators everywhere are bad out of the way. And so now we want to tell a little story. So our story starts with um, a passenger airliner flying from Greece to Lithuania. And it, as it turned out, it would pass through Belarusian airspace on this past Sunday. When it was, this is unconfirmed, intercepted by a Belarusian fighter jet and forced to land as Belarusian authorities said there was a bomb Which threat. Which is confirmed. This is the fighter jet part. Which, yeah, so we don't know if there's a fighter jet. There was the Belarusian authorities saying there was a bomb threat. However, when the plane was grounded, no bomb was found. Instead, the Belarusian police took and arrested 26-year-old, and I use this term very lightly here, journalist Roman Protasevich and his girlfriend. Since then, uh, Belarus has gotten a whole host of sanctions um pretty much from every corner of the globe mm-hmm. which you know considering the optics of the situation yeah, yeah diverting a plane to land in your airspace in order to kidnap a and again i'm using this term lightly here journal opposition journalist at that right yeah someone that thinks yeah, a matter of months opposition after you rigged your own presidential election and forced the opposition candidate to flee and form a government in exile and brutally yeah. cracked down in the protests that followed, disappearing people and leaving several dead. Right. And so, yeah, since then, Belarus has been, you know, condemned, which I think, grand scheme of things, not a not a horrible move by the international community con- to condemn this. Um, you know, we'll talk about later about who this... Uh, this Protasevich really is. I did so much research. I'm so proud of myself. Why it's sort of why it's sort of up in the air as to, you know, is 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 Lukashenko really just uh, practicing Marxist Leninism, <laughs> um, and just forming a vanguard? I mean, they keep the aesthetic. Um, I, they certainly keep the Soviet aesthetic around in, yeah. in Belarus. But in any case, um, Lukashenko has said that he acted legally and in accordance with international norms, which is certainly an interesting way of putting it. Um, he claimed he wanted to protect people by diverting the flight, so obviously sticking to his guns on the whole bomb threat thing, um, and dismissed reports that a MiG-29 fighter jet forced the aircraft to land as an absolute lie. So he's saying, you know, we didn't force them down with a fighter jet, we simply told the pilots to land because there was a bomb threat, which, you know, is is obviously much less questionable and that that it that would be the line he would go yeah with. of course and so he quote i quote here as we predicted our ill-wishers from outside the country and from inside the country changed their methods of attack on the state they have crossed many red lines and have abandoned common sense and human morals so lukashenko has vowed to respond harshly to any sanctions or provocations specifically threatening to weaken the country's border controls uh which halt western bound immigration and also drug trafficking uh Beller. Which is an, an incredibly, that's an incredibly funny way to, like, wage war on the West. It's just like, yeah, we'll just have a shittier border. It's like, hey, Poland, hey, Ukraine, you guys are, like, really <laughs> racist, right? That's just We're really just going to let real- all sorts of Muslim immigrants into your country. Like, <laughs> trolling. 
So Russia, who is Belarus's, you know, very close ally. I mean, the only thing that is really uh, separating them is, you know, a line drawn. They're basically the same country at this point. Pretty much, pretty much. The only thing that separates them is that Belarus, as its name would suggest, is much more white. But again, we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about that. Later. Yeah. Um. So. Russia, yeah, obviously has said that there's no reason to mistrust the Belarusian explanation. I mean, there is. You know, it. there definitely is. But, it, hey, it's a coherent story. Yeah, and so, but here's where it gets crazy, okay? This this, this is wild. I mean, this... I imagine, I would have I, loved I, to have been inside your head while you were reading all the research I did here. Oh, my God. I was I was, I was getting joker Yeah. Because then it all... All of this ties back to Canada in a way that hits very, very home. <laughs> Well, you can talk about that later. I don't, um, I don't quite know what you're getting at. So, yeah. yes, this guy, Roman Protasevich, is a dissident journalist, okay? And yes, Belarus did lie to ground that airliner and arrest him. And they probably did use a fighter jet to intercept it. But, here comes the big twist. Roman Protasevich is a neo-Nazi. And specifically, a neo-Nazi who has received funds from Western governments to try and destabilize and overthrow the Lukashenko regime. And before you get all, you know, I'm the guy from Always Sunny with the corkboard on me, I want to take you through some of the research uh, that I've done. I mean, okay, first of all, I would like to get out of the, this out of the way. The Euromaidan press has said, hey, they're claiming this guy's a neo-Nazi. And they're wrong, which means that it must be true because it's your own mind and press. Yeah, of course. Um, but here, I it's like if radio, it's like if any radio-free blank says anything, you know that it's wrong. Right. True enough. So yeah, here I quote: Protasevich was a member of the Young Front, a center-right pro-European organization that organized street activities against Lukashenko, huh. and also you know, fought I'm for sure the expansion I... of the use of Belarusian language to the detriment, of course, of Russian. He was a journalist for the Polish-Lithuanian-funded. Euro Radio, as well as Radio Liberty. Seems kind of A center-right pro-European organization. I think that's a very charitable it's interpretation charitable, of what an and organization it goes deeper. like that does. But I've, before I get into um, sort of the research I've done that, that connects him to neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine um, and uh, terrorism and war crimes in, in the Donbass uh, and... Uh, color revolutions and such. I want to talk a little bit about the far right and Belarus and, and specifically their ethnic ideology. I mean here, not like far right, like Boris Johnson or Doug Ford or whatever people are saying far right these days. I mean like fascists, right? The people yeah. in Belarus, like the people... Not not like, oh, we need to lower property taxes so that not we can Donald have more Trump, businesses. Not Donald Trump, Stefan Bandera, like, yeah. right? Which is what this guy is. So Belarus literally translates to white russia now at first when i was first researching like i knew this but i thought that white russia was like a geographical term right but also a great cocktail yeah but it's not it's called white russia as an ethnic term because belarus was the one slavic area that was conquered but never colonized by the mongols so unlike russia belarusians never intermarried with Mongols, which means so that they are like Russians, but more white. Right. This was interesting to read for me because as someone who 
you know, find Scandinavian and, and Norse mythology really interesting. Right. And also someone who doesn't profess that mm. a lot because of the kinds of people who are into to Norse mythology. Um, it was interesting to see that this, I, well, it it's not necessarily the epicenter of where the sort of renewed white supremacist interest in Norse mythology comes from. It's certainly a source of it because you know, this is why even in Russia, you see that the Slavic far right identifies specifically with Slavic and Norse paganism. So, you know, before the Mongols. Yeah, it's like an ancient pre-Mongol white European time, right? So it's like yeah. Hyperborea and or whatever. The really, in terms of culture and languages, I mean, Russia and Belarus are almost indistinguishable. I mean, you talked before about the Belarusian language, but I mean, besides that, the only the only reason why Belarus, the only reason why Belarus isn't just considered a part of Russia, is you know beyond the sort of de facto working relationship that Putin. Yeah, and I, I just have. want to interject here. Belarus and Russia have a completely open border. They have a completely shared economy. They have a shared currency, basically like an EU system. They essentially have a shared military, um, all sorts of intergovernmental cooperation. Right, like they're de facto union. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, and so the only real difference and the only reason why they're, you know, separate countries on paper is because Lukashenko himself wants more power than Putin would be willing to give him. In a him. hypothetical that's, United States, yeah. And, and that's sort of, that's the reality of it, and so that's why they're still considered two separate countries. But when Belarusians attempt to assert some sort of independent identity from Russia very often it falls into, you know, racial politics, especially because, you know, Russia is a multiracial state, you know, it's fucking huge. Yeah. And so, you know, many Central Asian Muslim ethnicities who are often the greatest targets of Slavic fascism. I mean, you look at that ad that uh, was dug up from uh, Alexei Navalny's campaign, um, where he's, you know, talking about, oh, yeah, I, I have, you know, some people use a newspaper to kill cockroaches. Some people use a shoe and then the the screen goes dark and there's like yelling in Arabic and then there's gunshots and then he's like standing there with a gun in his hand and he's like, I like to use a pistol. Yeah, it's just, and, and cockroach, it's like, of course, is a, can be used as a, a racist term towards Turkic people. Yeah, and so it, you can, you can see the sort of roots of this everywhere. Yeah, and, and so this is why like far right wingers in Slavic countries like Navalny himself or Roman Protasevich, uh, or those who even some of those who seized control of Ukraine in two thousand fourteen, or the Azov Battalion, who we're gonna talk about, tends to be pro European Union. Because they view modern Slavic culture, especially modern Russia, as tainted by ethnic minorities. And the close relationship between Russia and Central Asian nations doesn't help. So again, for example, let's go back to Alexei Navalny, very popular in the West. Uh, the quote-unquote main opposition figure in Russia. He, one of his big platforms is he wants to withdraw Russia from the Eurasian Economic Union, which is an EU-type system between, you know, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, Uzbekistan, and, and most of the Central Asian nations specifically, that allows, you know, free movement, uh, shared economy, etc., and enter into the European Union, which, of course, does not include any Muslim-majority states. So, and you know, it includes exclusively white majority states. So, um, it, you know, this is the, the racist narrative here. Like, it is a racist narrative that Russia at the moment is tainted by 
ethnic minorities. Um, and that they are, if they're not Russian, if they're, you know, Belarusian, Ukrainian, whatever, uh, they are in danger of the same. Uh, and so they often need to either separate Russia or from Russia or, or um, if the Russian control Russia to fix that. And, and so this racist narrative is often masked by, very cleverly, by a quote-unquote fear of Russian aggression, right? Um, Which is a great of, of line to take if you're trying to get, you know, things like NATO on your side. Or yeah, like that type of psychotic narrative tickles European NATO pink. They love it. Yeah, because they love it. They NATO exists as a way to try and contain Russia and, you know, as China at this point too. But Yeah, well, I mean, NATO would have a hard time doing that. But NATO was specifically formed as a way to counter Russia. And so, right, and, so and, and that didn't... <laughs> That didn't change when the Soviet Union collapsed or when the Berlin Wall came down. It just didn't. And again, that's not to say that Russia does not, you know, practice imperialism or whatever, do aggression. But in terms of states that will dominate your country and totally try and control you and not care about what your own people think, America is, a, of course, a much greater violator. And you could even look at what they've done in these sort of battleground states between uh Russia and America, and, and we'll talk about two of them today, Ukraine and Syria, um, which sort of shows you the type of, of awful, awful uh, stuff that America gets into. But now that we've talked about that, let's talk about um, Protasevich, and, and we'll start with the Young Front, which is, again, supposedly a quote-unquote okay. center-right group. Yeah, it, they made it sound like, like Turning Point USA. Like that's not even I, I, like Turning Point I, USA would be a right wing group. They made us sound like the Conservative Party of Canada. Yeah, like a a pro. Well, I think, but Turning Point USA is maybe a bit more act, accurate because, yeah, again, Protasevich was then a member of the Young Front, a center right pro European organization that organized street activities against Lukashenko. That makes them sound like they're just like yeah, like a local Turning Point chapter, oh, just like which organizing does protests against the dictator. Yeah. Which, oh, okay, wow, fine. they're Strategic heroes. allies, right? Yeah. The enemy but of no, my enemy is my friend, or whatever. They're like a right-wing paramilitary group. They encourage their uh, members to train with weapons. They don't have the money for actual weapons, so they use airsoft guns. But they encourage people to stockpile, right? And when, when they were involved in a bunch of big protests in Belarus in, like, 2017, um, in which Protasevich made his name documenting. Uh, and, uh, but before that, he can be seen in 2014, young guy at that point, um, taking part in the Maidan protests, which of course, uh, were allegedly, uh, American-funded, uh, protests which collapsed a sort of neutral government and put in place a very, very corrupt uh, U.S.-friendly government that basically functions on taking bribes from the American State Department um, in, in order to function. And, of course, uh, that whole thing triggered the, the Donbass War and the invasion of Crimea and stuff like that. Um, and so Protasevich can be seen in the Maidan protests in Ukraine taking down a statue of Lenin. Like, okay, he's from a center-right group. Uh, he's not so going to be Lenin. a huge fan of Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough, right? Whatever. Him him going to a protest isn't enough to indict him as a fat. I mean, yeah, him taking but, down a statue of Lenin. Like, 
I'm sure a Canadian, a member of the Canadian Conservative Party would, again, object to, or would object to having a statue of Lenin. I mean, the, the Conservatives are making the victims of communism memorial. The Liberals kind of tried to slow it down, but they're letting it happen. So, yeah. yes, absolutely. But I'm sure many NDP members would do the same. But once you think about, and, and we're going to talk about more, obviously, I did a lot of research, um, it, it sort of adds to a picture. Because uh, it's, again, really important to remember that a lot of the main backers of the Maidan protests um, were fascists. The type of Slavic fascists who we were talking about, or just like actual Nazi sympathizers. Because it's important to remember that Ukraine was like a huge collaborator state in World War II and, and never really apologized for it um, after they got independence. So... Protasevich also publicly sympathizes with um, this group called the Pahonia Detachment, um, which is a, a Belarusian paramilitary uh, that fights alongside far-right elements in favor of Ukraine in the Donbass. So uh, I, we've talked about the Ukraine and the Donbass situation. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to say the Ukraine. We've talked about Ukraine and, and the Donbass situation um, before on this podcast. But quick recap, essentially... Um, there were separatist states um, in the Donbass, which is a region, a uh, contested region between Russia and Ukraine, borders Russia, uh, and as well as Crimea, which is a, a peninsula that also borders Russia. Um, and Ukraine was close to crushing these separatist states. They tried peacefully to leave and it wouldn't happen, so they had a little revolution. Ukraine was close to crushing it when Russia invaded. Uh, and pushed Ukraine basically out and to the stalemate where it is today. Uh, there are lots of different groups on both sides fighting on both sides, the Russian-backed separatists and the Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, and, and one of these groups was a group called the Azov Battalion, which is... You may know, a- you may know the Azov Battalion from every single protest that specifically name-checks Christia Freeland. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're um, the group that Canada has directly funded in the past. And well, the- we've not funded, but we did send a military attaché. Yeah. Which is disappointing, especially because her grandfather was an unapologetic, uh, also a Nazi PR guy, um, collaborator. So, um, and and she's hates Russia. So, but we can talk about it. So Azov is... Uh, yeah, this this far-right group, and it started out as a paramilitary, although it's now being just directly folded into the Ukrainian National Guard, which is why when we send military aid to Ukraine, it goes to Azov. Like, that's what happened there, which is less despicable, but it's still gross. Um, right, and so this, uh, our journalist friend here, um, he decided, Roman Protasevich, decided to spend a year, um, how did he put it, documented? Yeah, so he publicly sympathizes with this Pahonia detachment. Um, right. And I, I just want to add, like, we were talking about the uh, the the Nordic stuff, and pictures of Pahonia detachment members often show them wearing Odinist tattoos, and so uh, likely through that connection, although we don't really know, um, he spent a year in the Donbass region. So, so sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so he publicly sympathizes, um, and yeah, they their members have Odinist tattoos, again, weird... But he was documenting them as they fought alongside the Azov Battalion. And a former member of the Azov Battalion says that, you know, he Protasevich was embedded with them as a journalist, although his coverage was, shall we say, far from neutral. Um, yeah, so we don't want to call 
him a journalist. Like, to I think quote, I, at this point, I do want to just drop the term journalist. Like, obviously, yeah. it's necessary to sort of lead people in like that. But I want to drop the term journalist because this guy essentially just does PR for every far-right group he comes Yeah, about. so Andrei Beletsky, it's first, the first leader of Azov, said that he, quote, fought against the occupation of Ukraine together with Azov and other military units. He was with us near Shirakino, where he was injured. But his weapon, as a, again, using the word lightly, journalist, was not a machine gun, but words. So that is the leader of, was it Azov? Andrei yeah, that's the leader of Azov. Andrei Beletsky, like, leader so of Azov he Battalion. He has documented some stuff um, about the Pahonia detachment, uh, and specifically in, in Belarus as well. But uh, the claim, which is good, you know, it's well backed up, is that he actually did it all. Like, when he was in Donbass, he wasn't with Pahonia, he was with Azov. Um, And And he's been pictured, for example, wearing t-shirts with swastikas on them and other Nazi symbology. I mean, Which is not Slavic fascist, it's just, like, Nazism. Just straight up, yeah. Like, not even even caring about, oh, it's, it's our tradition and we just want to keep our homeland, like... Dropping all of that bullshit and just saying, "Yeah, I, I'm I'm a Nazi. What the fuck are you gonna do about it?" Yeah. Um. And so, but again, he, old... he, the one thing that he has supposedly had going for him is that he was just a, a journalist. That has been his yeah his so defense some, the whole time. Some Russian and Belarusian state, uh, quote unquote, news sites, um, have claimed that it's quite possible that he actually fought. Um, the main evidence for this is an old interview when his own father claimed that he was fighting and a picture has resurfaced that shows him in like full combat fatigues helmet and everything but that's pretty shaky especially when basically every Azov person interviewed about it so far is being like yeah no he just did PR for us but basically he either ran PR for a neo-nazi terrorist group or he fought for a neo-nazi yeah, best case scenario group. best case scenario he's the guy telling the world that everyone here is just following orders Worst case scenario, he's pulling the fucking trigger mm. on on the. No, it's not even just Muslim following minorities. orders because just following orders admits you're doing the wrong thing. No, he's telling them that they're freedom fighters fighting to liberate Ukraine from oppose those oppose Russian evil, imperialism. Uh, Muslim Russians. Like, See, I think like you've despicable. heard of Ju- you've heard of Judeo communism, like that's the sort of weird far right thing that all the the internet groipers latched onto, but I think. Um, you know, just to shake things up, they should go to, like, Islamic communism. Well, it's not even that. It's just Islamo-Slavism. No, I know, but what I'm saying, like, I think it would be funny if they pivoted a wit, like, give Jewish people a bit of a break, you know? Right, true enough, go, especially Go nowadays. to Islamic communism. Like, yeah. of course, Arab socialism, uh, was a sort of ideological project, but I just want, yeah, Islamo-communism. Just yeah. as, like, a thing that far-right people get mad about. I think the yeah. Jewish people deserve a break. Yeah. So back in, in Belarus, and uh, those 2017 protests we were talking about, um, Protasevich uh, was, quote-unquote, documenting far-right rioters. I don't know why he ended up with those guys every day. Hmm. Uh, far-right rioters. And I'm not joking, I'm not exaggerating here, at a temporary nationalist memorial that was set up, remember what nationalism means there, he took part in a book burning. Okay. Right, and, and, and when I say nationalist, it's it's important to remember that like obviously like nationalism means different things in different countries, right? If I were to say I'm a Russian nationalist, it's probably some sort of irredentist claim to Ukraine. 
and Belarus. Cuban nationalism. Canadian nationalist, that's like, that's like a liberal idea. If I were to say I'm, you know, a German nationalist, that's fascist. And Belarusian nationalism is fascism. I think, like, yeah. <laughs> pure and simple, it is racial identitarianism. It is white supremacy. It is anti-Muslim hatred. Uh, and sort of anti-Turkic, anti-Asiatic hatred. Um, and it's racist. And he took part in a book burning. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he doesn't. Yeah, he's a he's a again quote unquote journalist who doesn't give a shit about optics. He doesn't care. Well, it's not even that he doesn't give a shit about optics. He doesn't give a shit about impartiality. Like yeah. most journalists, even journalists with a a tilt, will try and at least appear like they are nonpartisan. Whereas this guy is just going around using "I'm a journalist" as an excuse for hanging out with some of the most evil people in that part of the world. Um, and doing PR for them, spreading the news of what they're doing, trying to make them look good, trying to advance their cause. And every time, you know, like now that he's been arrested and everyone's like, oh my God, political prisoner, they're like, Belarus is, is arresting journalists, right? Which is just bad. It's disgusting. And it's a clever tactic that you have to, uh, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so a few days later in these protests, like, he just dropped the journalism cover and just started protesting with, like, fascists. Um, and in 2018, here's where it gets really messed up. In 2018, Protasevich goes to the United States. Now, where in the United States do you think he goes? Where in the United... I'm going to say... I'm going to say Langley, Virginia, or maybe Washington, Close. D. No, close. You Quantico? have the right idea. He doesn't go to the... He, he goes to Washington. <laughs> And specifically, he goes to visit the State Department, which is, of course, in charge of foreign policy. Uh, He meets all sorts of people, his own claims, his own quotes. He meets all sorts of people there. He says it's a very enlightening day that's going to change his life, as well as this guy, Gleb Zhvorenkov, who's a Western lobby guy, but for Ukraine. And shortly after that, in late August of 2018, he gets his first real job. He starts working for Belarus Euroradio.fm, which is an anti-Lukashenko media outlet that, you guessed it, receives money from the United States. And as you can probably guess by the name, is pro-EU. You know the politics behind that. Mm-hmm. In 2019 and 2020, he works to support grassroots opposition movements in the lead-up to the general election. Um and during the protests, uh, and received funding from Poland through an organization called Belsat. Um, now, Belsat's motivations are even more than just shady. Um, in, in 2015, an article that appears on this, this channel, it's a Telegram channel, encouraged people to join as volunteers on the side of Ukraine in the war against the, quote, Novorossiya states. So Novorossiya was this sort of project for the Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine to separate, which is most of Ukraine, actually, but, like, the sort of culturally and linguistically Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine who were oppressed by the Ukrainian government to separate, those were the separatists that kicked off the whole war in the Donbass. So this channel is encouraging people to volunteer to fight these separatists who were um, undergoing extreme suppression by the Ukrainian government. Um, and it included a contact email address and a phone number. And, of course, when you you remember the type of international volunteers that are going to Ukraine, they are 
usually weird right-wingers. People like the Pahonia detachment uh, from Belarus who are working with the Azov Battalion, with Nazis. And when right. you know if, that... If it were... If it were... If it were 50 years ago, these would be Gladio guys. I mean... Yeah, if it was, like, that stay-behind-army type of people. No, you're absolutely right. Like, it's it's the type of organization that would hire a white supremacist to do PR for them, a uh, Belsat, um, or at least these uh, to, to find this guy. Uh, when they give contact information to say, hey, go fight in this war, the type of people they're going to put you in contact with are the type of people they agree with ideologically, and those are the type of... Those are are the fascists who are fighting in that war. And obviously, like, you know, even though just a moment of sort of clarity and honesty here, I do not support Ukraine in that conflict. Uh, I think it would be dishonest of me intellectually to say that, you know, everybody fighting for Ukraine is a Nazi, right? That would be stupid. But I'm like I'm, I'm sure there are groups pro, decent pro, enough politics. Pro EU, anti Russia, as a position in Ukraine, definitely opens itself up to the far right because it does. It, but it not everyone it, who oh, has let's, that position. Let's is go on join. The far right. Let's go join the Union of Crackers. Like that's yeah. <laughs> if yeah. that's your ideology, then that's what yeah. you're gonna do. <laughs> and that's what um, you're gonna fight for. And and so like I, I'm not going to say that like by giving the link to go fight they're supporting fascism but when this is an organization that is receiving funding from poland which is a state teetering on the brink of, fa- uh, of fascism uh to and funding fascists like protosevich when they're providing contacts to go join uh, a paramilitary and fight in this war they're probably providing contacts that are fascists right like azov battalion and they're probably trying to fund groups like Pahoni detachment um, and, and so this, this station also does regularly give a platform to Belarusian nationalists, remember what I talked about before, and just, again, straight-up neo-Nazis as well. Um, and so the final part of Protasevich's story is what he was doing in Greece. And this might surprise you. He was working as a photographer in Greece for their exiled opposition leader and probably their legitimate president, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya who we talked about in an episode, uh, was the main opposition candidate against Lukashenko in the most recent elections. Um, she is a liberal. Again, here you go. Uh, she's not necessarily anti-Russia, but she's a pro-EU liberal and was forced to flee the country after a massively fraudulent election that in which uh, uh, Lukashenko claimed victory. Um we have no idea what he was going to do in Lithuania, but he, he was going to go hang out with his friends. Her. He was yeah. going to go, yeah, he was going to go hang out with his buddies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in any case, I mean, the official Juno line on this, if anyone is a, you know, Marxist, Leninist, Junoist, um, the party mm-hmm. line is that, uh, yeah, Lukashenko sucks. Like, obviously diverting and you know you could even call it really a, Svetlana said it was a hijacking yeah I wouldn't that's, use that term because I think it was in any case whatever. diverting a plane and arresting a journalist straight off well, journalist I, I do like how you just refuse to pr- try and pronounce her last name oh I'm not that's not worth the time in any, yeah. in any case 
yes, that's a bad thing for a country to do. And that sets a bad and precedent. And he's a bad leader. He's a dictator. Right. He's the worst dictator in Europe. But this is, it's like Navalny. It's like, yeah, this shouldn't happen to anyone. But if it's going to happen to somebody, you want it to be this kind of guy. Yeah, like objectively, Navalny and, and this guy, Protasevich, are political prisoners. But I am devoting absolutely zero emotional energy and zero time on this podcast to demanding the release or saying, hey, it would be nice if this guy was released of a fascist. Yeah. Right? For like, me, I'm putting... Those I'm are putting... the people who actually should be in prison. And I believe, I could be wrong, I'm actually going to look, I know it's true in Russia, but many European states have laws against being fascist and displaying fascist symbology. And in, so if that is the case in Belarus, um, then for wearing that shirt, he could actually just be in prison for a legitimate reason. And obviously that's not, like, he hasn't been charged with the crimes that carry the death penalty of terrorism, but he's been charged with um, some some lesser crimes, and he could be in prison for up to 15 years. Right, and I remember I saw, like, a video of his trial, and all the comments were just shit like, oh, wow, they're rushing this trial. Wow, he's just a political prisoner. Like, yeah, no shit. Like, obviously yeah. he's a political prisoner. This isn't... Oh, oh my God, wait, not... wait, listen, listen to this headline, just because I was doing my on-the-spot oh, research. Yeah, listen to this go. headline from uh, this, this uh, news site called Emerging Europe. So oh, boy. obviously a pro. We're off to okay. Off to a great start. Here. Off to a great start. Hit me Listen with it. Hit me with it. How new anti-Nazi legislation in Belarus could be used to target civil society? Wait, you're telling me that they're pro EU and scholars of Gramsci? Hell yeah! I just love <laughs> this idea. Hey, if you outlaw Nazism, you're gonna stop all these protesters, like. EU liberals trying to defend, uh, trying to say, hey, you shouldn't outlaw Nazism is not really the own you think it is. Yeah, I mean, especially when you have groups that are begging to be let in because of how white the EU is. Yeah. Like, they, they're yeah. practically begging to be let in because they don't want to be with the, you know, tainted Russians. Like, that is, the fact that you could think Russia is too is like too, has too many racial minorities for your taste is insane on may 14th belarusian president alexander lukashenko signed off on laws passed by the country's parliament to describe by state-run media as a complex set of measures meant to counteract attempts to rehabilitate nazism which is understood as public actions that justify the ideology and practice of nazism approve of or deny the crimes committed by nazis and glorify nazi criminals and their accomplices the International Federation for Human Rights, an NGO active in Belarus, has expressed concerns that these laws will, quote, unquote, severely deteriorate the human rights situation in Belarus, unquote, by limiting freedom of expression. So weird. So weird. Just, um, yeah. Insane. Yeah. Uh, Two-thirds of the country's pre-war Jewish population was killed by the Nazis, by the way just an unhinged nation <laughs> completely unhinged people in that country so yeah um he's a political prisoner but he also sucks so i don't care like, like this it, is a common theme that you'll find as we move into momentarily the next part of our episode which is that no matter how much a country's dictator might suck inevitably if the u.s backs your opposition it probably sucks more yeah 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 the opposition the opposite like i think 
like a clear cut a clear cut case of this would be like Cambodia under Pol Pot. Like it wasn't yeah. the U.S. that got him out of power; it was the fucking Vietnamese. Yeah, they invaded. Look, the the Paul. Sorry, whoa, Cambodia was run fine under the Vietnamese. Whole, oh, <laughs> no, not That's under a, Pol Pot. That was, no, that guy. That was. But an then it's important to remember that the second that was, the Vietnamese took over, what did the U.S. do? They started funding Pol Pot. That was an incredible burying of the lead, though. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That was I, I did a good job of that one. Oh, man. Okay, so let's not... Uh, we can do an episode on, on Democratic Cambodia. Let's, let's jump over a couple countries, um, yeah. and let's talk some Syria. So, as of recording, Syria has finished Today. voting. Pol- polls are closed in its federal election, where Bashar al-Assad uh, hopes to stay in power. Again, as we said, you guys heard his, uh, his theme music. Um, at the top of the episode, it rocks. Of course, in all likelihood, it's a completely fraudulent election, either by changing vote tallies, voter suppression. I mean, never mind the fact thirty percent of the country is under the control of various rebel groups. I mean, this this election, Tony Blinken is losing his fucking mind over this. Let's just say that. Yeah. Oh, oh, he is. No, he's um, tweeting stuff like this election is a fraud. It's illegitimate. Yeah, whatever. That's cool. Whatever, dude. Um, but who cares? This election comes in the eleventh year of the Syrian civil war and is the first election since it was stabilized and you know you could argue has basically been won by Assad. Um, banners of Bashar were, were hung on the the twelve thousand polling stations across the country. Crowds of people were singing and dancing outside. You know, state and pro-government media portrayed the elections as one of unity across sectarian, ethnic, and ideological lines. Like, hey, if you want a united, coherent Syria, go vote for for Bashar al-Assad. Um, and, you know, it, it may be important to remember throughout all of this that it can be funny sometimes to think about how badly the U.S. like embarrassed itself in Syria. You had, like... Department of Defense militias fighting CIA militias. You know, there's leaked documents to suggest yeah. that. But, you know, oh, this election... So I just, let me interrupt for a second. Here's what Blinken actually has to say. Right? The Assad regime's so-called presidential election is neither free nor fair. The United States joins France, Germany, and Italy in calling for the rejection of the regime's attempts to re- regain legitimacy without respect in the Syrian people's human rights and freedoms. So, like, does that mean that the U.S. is going to start arming ISIS again? Um, look, all I gotta say is that uh, actually, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I'm not gonna say that. Right. Um, but you know, it is it's very interesting looking at the sort of where in the wake of the Iraq War, sort of how we got ISIS, and now they're yeah. just kind of someone you can either fund or fight if you need a forever war. They're almost like a like a rent an enemy. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to remember that throughout all of this, and we're going to talk some more about it, of course, that even though one may be sort of happy that America has embarrassed itself in Syria, that it's been a complete imperial failure, and with this election as like a final slap in the face, the human cost of what the United States did in Syria is horrifying. Right? This is one of the worst humanitarian crises in history with 6.6 refugee, million refugees in other country and 6.2 million people internally displaced, excluding the economic toll, the infrastructure toll, and the actual just physical death toll. And yes, I want to make this clear. This is this fault of the United States. Yes, Syria was a mild personalist dictatorship for you know 30 years before that, 40 years. And that's bad. That's not good. Assad's not good. But... 
it would have been a mild rebellion without Western intervention. And in fact, it probably wouldn't have happened at all without Iraq. Well, no, because yeah, you wouldn't have had a, an entire group of disgruntled and displaced Sunni Muslims who were willing to destroy Syria. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't have had America desperate to stabilize the region that they destabilized. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so Assad himself voted in Douma, which was one of the first towns to actually fall to the rebel forces, and actually a huge flashpoint in the war. Uh, lots of people died to the government bombing, and one of the chemical attacks, I don't know if it was the one that was fake or not, uh, happened in Douma. It's hard to tell at this point. Um, but uh, video shows the citizens there cheering on Bashar and gathering around him and chanting his name when he and his wife went to vote. So it's definitely sort of recovering both in terms of uh, the people there and also uh, support for Bashar al-Assad. Like, I think that there's probably a good amount of like genuine support for him because of like nationalism and... Uh, you know, he's the guy who won the war, yeah. and especially in the South when you have these, uh, you know, they're constantly subjected to Israeli airstrikes, um, or, and, and earlier in the war, they were victim to some of the, not ISIS, but some of the uh, Western-backed Islamic extremist groups. Um, I think it's pretty easy to see uh, that, like, people there, despite it being one of the worst hit places by federal government um, or by Syrian government forces, I, I think it's easy to see them people there being like, hey, this is all the fault of someone else. He is the guy who's won, winning the war, right? And so I, I can see that support as genuine, and I think the the key to Assad winning this election, which he will in a landslide, of course, uh, is not manipulating the results. It's not, you know, switching out ballot boxes. It's just controlling who can and can't vote, which is so much easier, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, he goes to vote in Duma, which is, it's, it's again, another slap in the face of the U.S. force. I'm going to talk about this in a second because it was a flashpoint uh, sort of politically in the war. And so for him to go and personally cast his vote there is like just a it would be It would be like, it would be like the, a current leader of Iraq casting their ballot in Fallujah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. So, quick recap of the Civil War, I think, uh, is important. Uh, the Syrian Civil War. So, Assad was a personalist dictator. Uh, he had been in power for 11 years. He had taken over from his father, uh, Hafez al-Assad, who was in power for 30 years before him. Uh, Assad was supposed to be an ophthalmologist, uh, but his brother died in a car crash, um, and so he took over. He's less handsome than his brother he's less charismatic but he's uh shown himself to be very shrewd and he is leader. the hunter biden of syria not even like he's cool certainly but he's not even like hunter biden is like a charming screw-up whereas this guy yeah. is definitely more of like a, a scheming guy like a conniver yeah like i don't know like i i imagine hunter biden is probably a very charismatic guy I would, Whereas I, think I would love Bashar, to just hang out with him. I feel like... Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think Bashar al-Assad would probably be a bit awkward if you talked to him. Yeah. Um, I feel like he, he probably just likes have to spend a lot vibes. of time with his wife. Like, he's probably yeah. like a wife guy. <laughs> yeah, Assad's um, definitely a wife guy. Which is cool. That's a good thing. Um, so, he, he was basically uh, part of a long line, uh, a long reign in Syria 
uh, when the Arab Spring kicked off, which was a, a series of uh, uprisings in in the Arab world. It only ever worked in Tunisia, but uh, it, it kicked off there. And, and these protests escalated into a full-blown civil war when America, Israel, and Turkey funded both moderate opposition groups and also Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups like al-Nusra. Um, and the war continued to escalate as it dragged on, as ISIS formed uh, and started capturing more and more territory. At a certain point, it controlled most of the rebel territory in Syria. Uh, and in the north, because uh, the Syrian government was cut off from, from the north of, of, of Syria, uh, and ISIS was committing a genocide against the Kurdish, Kurdish uh, majority there, uh, they formed groups to protect themselves where the Syrian army couldn't reach them, which is the now at least somewhat famous Rojava, which is a Kurdish... Mm, I wouldn't describe it as a state, but like a socialist republic, at least nominally, allied with Assad's government. They have joint control of certain areas. They do joint patrols on the Turkish border and such. Um, again, apart from Rojava, all of the rebels are far worse than Assad. Oh, and uh, podcast stuff, like if you're wondering where Brace Belden was when he was fighting in Syria, he was fighting with the Kurds in Rojava. Um... Turkey if itself is interested also in the, the podcast cinematic universe. Exactly, exactly. Um, to which we are being entryists. Um, Turkey itself has directly intervened. They uh, have invaded Syria and Rojava. Um, but at this point, rebel territory it has fractured and divided into pockets. It's slowly falling. There's still quite like several million people living in, in parts of Syria that are not under control of the government, uh, or Assad's government. But, um, apart, like, not including Rojava, but, uh, it's getting smaller by the day. Um, America has suffered humiliating defeat after humiliating defeat in the region. Uh, their bombing campaigns have been largely ineffective, except when they blow up civilians. Um, and their ground troops have been unable to train any serious and lasting resistance to Assad. I remember the, uh, do you remember when we were talking about that guy that Biden appointed to be his secretary of defense or whatever, and he was in front of, like, Congress, and they're like, we gave you, like, $300 million to train rebels in Syria. How many of them are there left? And he's like, four. Oh, yeah. Four? Oh, well. Um, Sucks. Like, total <laughs> hey, humiliating hey, you know what? You know what? Maybe those are, it's like, uh, just like four Steven Seagals, you know? Four, like, complete action movie protagonists that will just I, do I any saw black Steven Seagal. Require. I saw him when I was in line to meet Peter Capaldi at Fan Expo once. No, Apparently he's no way. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I saw him. He was just like in the next booth. The lineup for Peter Capaldi was far bigger than his. I mean, yeah, but you're telling me you were that close to him and you survived? <laughs> he didn't go like he didn't go full black ops on your ass? Well, you know, he just does that to everybody who like he doesn't like. Um, no, I don't. I don't know. I, I imagine I could probably outrun him at this point. He's kind of old. Yeah, he's he's a big guy, but I mean, look. I don't know um, if he's big. I don't even like. I guess he was. We love he was our big down, guys, don't we? Don't we, folks? Yeah, no, we we respect that. No, I mean, I don't even know who the new generation of action heroes are. Are they just like WWE stars, like Ronda Rousey or something? John Cena. <laughs> John Cena, People's Hero of the oh, yeah. People's Republic of China. Oh, yeah, that is so... I mean, that is so, so funny. Cool. Look, 
people get mad, but I think it's funny. So, anyways, um, moving on from from that, um, specifically Russia and Iran's support for Assad's government. They were, by the way, I might add, right. the only two powers involved in Syria who actually asked to be involved. Right. They were like, um, "Hey, Syria, do you want our help?" And and Bashar was like, "Yeah, dude, sure." Yeah, uh, and he had shored up his his reign. So. When he looked basically finished in 2014, he was able to stabilize the situation enough to get Iran and Russia to help him get where he is today, in which basically the entire coastline, um, most of the border, ba- the entire border with Israel and uh, 70% of the country, um, not including his Rojava allies, are under his direct control, right? But again, this election is the farce. A first, rather. Like, the two main opposition figures, the only two uh, big opposition figures who were actually allowed by the government to run, one of them is from, like, a loyal opposition party, and the other one is literally just another guy from Bashar al-Assad's political party. That's fu- Imagine he wins. <laughs> instantly transfers control over to, to Assad. Yeah, that'd be funny. Um, so, that said, like, the election even being held is a sign that Assad is essentially proclaiming victory in the Civil War, despite the best efforts of America and NATO. Right, like, he's, do, he's doing a little end zone dance. Yeah, exactly. No, that's it. It's like the it's the Fortnite Pokemane dance that you do when you <laughs> get your number one victory royale. That, uh, that sentence just caused the Syrian Civil War to extend for at least another ten years. My bad. I, I hope you're happy. My bad. Now they're fighting. Now they're like, fighting over. Now they're fighting over the last like five Pokemon tier tier three subs. Mm. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I mean, she is she is Arabic, ethnically, so it it could be like she could probably join the Syrian Arab Army if she wanted to. Oh hell yeah! I would um, love. I would love to see like a like a civil war or something unfold on Twitch, like just having like all those drama channels have to keep up with like which twitch streamers on what is up drama alert nation i'm your host killer keemstar let's get right into the news that's a that's a throwback god but anyway yeah just like what what would you how do you even cover that like oh yeah this person that you look up to um they're on the wrong side of like a civil war and their side's actually doing ethnic cleansing oh well oh isn't that just gal gadot you had to go for the low-hanging fruit, didn't you? I look. I saw the low-hanging fruit, and I took it. I mean, sometimes. It's what what am I supposed do. to do? Not grab the fruit? Well, yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I have tomahawk missiles that know your location. So, <laughs> my bad. Um. So yeah, like, this is the third uh, embarrassing defeat for America in the region after Afghanistan and Iraq. Um. One has to wonder, like, whether they'll just give up or if they're going to end up, like, bankrupting themselves rather than into an imperial rollback and, like, sort of just going the way of Rome. Um, I think the sad thing is we know the answer to that. Like, I, I feel like that's not so much a question anymore. Well, I don't know. Like, there seems to be at least some sort of political will to talking about a mild amount of imperial role. Like... No one's. They're never going to completely decommit from Afghanistan, and in fact, the withdrawal that they're doing now is is not actually a withdrawal. But I, I I think to an extent, like 
there's at least a will to talk about it. I mean, look, I hope so. I'm just saying we might not see it until we are much, much older. I don't think the U.S. Empire is not done. It's sci-fi concept. United, near future sci-fi concept, near future movie concept. United States military base in Iraq uh, as the entire country collapses and they stop getting support from home. Ooh. But it would, um, would it be like a COD sci-fi where it's like just barely in the future? And it's like limited hangout for all the tech that they're going to then unleash on their own people in like 10 Oh years. yeah, no, it would be like completely State Department funded. It would end up with like USA, USA jingoism. Oh, hell yeah. Like, like oh yeah, these probably are... end up like establishing a government in exile in Baghdad after these guys. Baghdad. They're the real. They're the real patriots. And you know why yeah, that is far from home. They all voted for for Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so that's that's my that's my concept. So yeah, uh, that's really. I mean, I want to also just add. We didn't really have time to talk about it, but uh, out of Mali, there's another dictator who's doing a troll. So there's this army officer trained by America named uh, Asimi Goita. Uh, and last year, he basically, there were all these protests against the Mali, the Mali government. Uh, and the people were like, please, someone remove this government from power. And so he did. He did a military coup. Uh, and then he folded to the demands of some of the regional organizations near Mali and didn't install himself. He let a civilian government take power. He became vice president. But that government immediately started screwing up. They started messing up. The economy collapsed. People started protesting again. And they said, please, somebody, do something about this government. So you know what he does yesterday? He does, he does it again. Absolutely he does another bad. military coup in like six months. And, and I might add that both of these coups were like completely bloodless. Nobody died. People just got arrested. I look. I think it's a little early to sort of comment on this a lot. I think we can yeah. we can report on it happening, and maybe next week there might be updates. Um, we don't know, but yeah. I well, think, it seems uh, pretty popular this time too, so we'll see. But yeah. he's going to install himself as dictator at this point. So, um, yeah, that this was our uh, our dictator update. Uh, rundown um, <laughs> we got we got belarus which yes white russia and Fringe. uh yeah i mean be wary of people who try and hide behind the word journalist is all i'm gonna say i mean freedom of the press hell yeah eve uh, fartlow <laughs> god damn it now we're, now we have zero chance of getting monetized after you said that <laughs> In any okay, case, we're done. Yeah, I've been Declan. I've been Malcolm. And we'll see you next week. Yep.